Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here along with William Fink, and we're going to be continuing our study on the book of Revelation. This is part three. Uh, our first part was all introduction, and part two was Revelation chapter one. And tonight we're going to be continuing with Revelation chapter two. And uh, we, uh, you know, we've been making many points along the lines of the symbolic language that is contained in the book of Revelation. And uh, except for the salutation in the front, and I guess the description, but even the description of his hair being white like wool and his feet of fine brass, etc., etc., obviously that is symbolic language. And except for the salutation, uh, you know, it, it, which was literal, the salutation is because that's addressed to the various churches the, of the uh, seven churches, the li- seven literal churches that were also going to be talking about their symbolic uh, meaning as well. And so tonight we're going to be continuing with Revelation chapter 2. Any points from you, Bill, before we continue into chapter 2? Well, well, I don't have as I don't have a whole lot to say about one. I do believe that in chapters two and three we're going to find out that the message to the seven churches is all about the racial aspects of the covenants, uh-huh. and, and at least four of those assemblies received um, a strong message, in, in sometimes in symbols and sometimes directly, that that have everything to do with with the racial covenants of our God, okay. and, and yes. not to mix our race and and the. The message to the seven churches will absolutely uphold the racial separatist covenant message. Yeah, actually, thanks for bringing that up because we're going to be talking about covenant theology. Bill's going to be my guest on the Restoration Hour this coming Tuesday and Thursday, which is on the micro effect at 7 Central, both days, Tuesday and Thursday. And Tuesday we'll be talking about the covenant language of the Old Testament and dissecting words that have been misused and mistranslated and misdefined in the Old Testament. And then uh, on Thursday, we'll be talking about uh, similar subjects in the New Testament and proving that the the covenants are only and exclusively with the children of Israel and no one else. And once you understand that language, oh, by the way, uh, that reminds me, one of the words that I meant to send, send you, Bill, and it forgot was apolumi, because that's another exclusive word that only applies to the Israelites. It can't possibly be applied to anybody else, you know. And that's in the New Testament. Very exclusive language. Okay, so so put that on your calendar for next week. And now let's proceed here with Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So this here actually sounds like literal language. It's not quite um, symbolic in terms of futuristic or broad language regarding, you know, the entire 12 tribes at this point. Uh, do you have any in historical information on the church at Ephesus to pinpoint what John is saying here, or actually what Yahshua is saying here? 
Well, well, all right. First, I believe that each of these seven assemblies are an example. Okay. A lot. I understand the interpretation that these are seven periods of time right. in the, the the overall Christian church. But I think that's a very, in, in a lot of ways, that's a very Catholic interpretation. Okay. Uh, I think that these are all just seven examples that are being set, and that there's more meaning in the names and the message to the assemblies, uh-huh. and that e- even if we want to ex- to to accept the, um, yeah, you know, the Howard Rand Bertrand Compare, um interpretation that these are seven periods in church history. Uh-huh. It has to be recognized by anybody with, with eyes to see that these, every one of these assemblies, we have people today that have all of these traits mentioned right. about all the seven assemblies. So let me get that out of the way. Yeah. I think that it's the seven examples given to us and that these particular assemblies were chosen because their names had particular meanings that were an important part of the message. Uh-huh. Ephesus the word is apparently from the Greek word ephesis, which is S-I-S instead of S-O-S, right? Which is a word with a wide variety of meanings, and they all might apply here. Uh-huh. It, it may be the word ephesis may mean a throwing, a hurling, or a shooting. In another sense, it means permission or license. And the name may also mean appetite or desire, okay. so it may mean desirable. Right. There was a famous festival held there in honor of the idol Artemis, who's called Diane in the um, in the New Testament. And and that's because the Romans equated the Greek goddess Artemis with their Diana. I'm sorry, it's Diana, right? Uh-huh. Now, now the um the town seems to have grown up around that festival. And, and games were associated with the festival, so therefore the town might be named after the games, where it means a throwing, a hurling, or a shooting. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. But I think that permission and license also are, are key meanings in understanding this message, because they're, they're excoriated for it. Yahweh. Tell, Joshua tells us that the Ephesians hated evil works and rejected false apostles, yet they were criticized for having, quote-unquote, left your first love, right? They left their first love, right? Yeah. And, and since it's explained in the book of Acts in chapters 18 and 19, that it was Paul of Tarsus who founded the assembly at Ephesus, mm-hmm. then, Christ, then, then the Christianity, the gospel message which Paul brought to Ephesus, must have been what Yahshua was chastising them for having left. Okay. Paul had yeah. even warned in Acts 20 when Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem for the final time, right? He even warned the elders of Ephesus at Acts 20, verse 29, that, quote, I know that after my departure, oppressive wolves shall come into you, not being sparing of the sheep. Mm. And In other words, people would lead them astray. And, and we see from this that that's exactly what happened. This statement to the assembly is therefore also a recognition of, of the legitimacy of Paul's mission by Yahshua himself. Yes, yes. Even though the, um, the Ephesians rejected false apostles and would not put up with evil, they were chastised for somehow departing from the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not told exactly what that departure entailed. 
in Paul's one epistle to the Ephesians, which we have now in our Bibles, he talks about fornication and other sins, Mm -hmm. but he's not making any specific accusations. He's only exhorting and edifying them, and he's not chastising them for any particular transgression. Instead, he tells them to put on the whole armor of God, right? That's that's the... um, Ephesians chapter 6, that famous chapter. So so their departure must have come after, it, it must have come later. It must have come after Paul's arrest. Uh-huh. Okay, very good. Uh, well, I'm just uh, going to quickly cite uh, Howard Rand's book, Study in Revelation, which uh, is the primary text that I used in uh, my document on the book of Revelation, which is at uh, www.anglo-saxonisrael.com. And uh, it's called Revelation Unfolded Part 1. And I would say that 50% of uh, what I have written there is based on the work of Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare. And I, I'm pretty sure uh, you and Clifton have uh, Bertrand Compare's study in Revelation as well. Yeah, yes, I have Bertrand Compare's study in Revelation that Clifton transcribed and added a lot of my notes to and a lot of his own on two websites now. Okay. They're on Clifton's site and in the lowermost right-hand menu, but plus they're on my new um, – well, well, the site's not quite organized yet, but the data is there yes. with with all the audio tapes from Compare, right? Okay, and it's, great. Um, the transcriptions and the audio tapes on, on the Compare.Christogeny.org site. Yeah, okay, because I would say between those two authors, uh, Howard B. Rand and Bertrand Compare, more historical comparisons uh, and relationships have been discovered by those two men with respect to the interpreting the book of Revelation than anybody else. Everybody well, else. well, there's no doubt, and, yeah. and we owe them a great debt, but yeah. they also made some errors, oh, yeah. and, and we have to discuss those. But, yeah. yes, yeah. we owe Compare and Rand a great debt for the work they did in the historical interpretation of the Revelation. Mm-hmm. However, let me say that the Reformers held the same view, okay. that the, the Revelation should be interpreted oh, yeah. in history, although they did not have as much of it revealed to them. I'm even going to, when we get on further in, in the series, I'm going to show from Irenaeus, who was a second-century bishop in what is now Lyons, France. Mm-hmm that he understood that both Daniel and the Revelation foretold the fall of Rome. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, yeah, so uh, many people had glimpses of major sections of prophecy, but between Rand and Compare, they put historical uh, insight onto some of the most minute elements of these prophecies, and it's all very well done. Well, well, yes, they did. And I would say Compare is better than Rand because Compare knew who Judah was, right? right. Rand had that also. Yeah, well, Rand doesn't get there until toward the end of his book, so it doesn't really become an issue. And that's when his analysis starts to fall apart. But compared to those two uh, analysts, uh, researchers, every every other book, every other writing, you know, either before them or contemporary to them, is simply vague generalities and guesswork. I mean, they have no historical insight whatsoever, except for occasional, you know, a person like you just mentioned, you know, who might have an insight about this episode or that episode. But both Rand and Compare did a step-by-step, event-by-event historical analysis and came up with 
with events that really fit the bill, you know. Well, nobody... well, yes, they did. But let, let me say that, you know, Rand and Tom Bray are looking at it backwards. Oh, they had an advantage, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. The, well, the Reformers understood that the Catholic Church was associated with yeah. the feast right. of Revelation 13. Yeah. There's all kinds of artwork on my Christogenia site yeah. that prove that. Yeah. That, uh, that that make direct associations between the papacy and the beast, and and I have three examples of that uh-huh. artwork in my uh, misconceptions concerning Paul and the Church paper on on Christogenia. If people wanted to see that, they would see some of that art, and you could click on those pictures and get a larger, blown up version, so that you could read the small captions. Yeah, and. Yeah. and the scans aren't the best. The drawings aren't the best because they were scanned. I scanned them myself out of a very old book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But in comparison to what's available from the Judeo-Christians, right, uh, who have written maybe 100,000 miles worth <laughs> in small print of commentary on the book of Revelation, not, none of which has any relevance to what the book of Revelation really means prophetically. Uh, you know, they have no understanding of it whatsoever. Well, no, every piece of it is garbage. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. Left, the whole Left Behind series, that, that's, yes. that's the, the pro- probably a primary example of the Judeo-Christian outlook on a revelation. It's all pure science yeah. fiction garbage. That's right. It, it's that's science right. fiction meets Judaism, basically. <laughs> and, right. and it's all trash. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I literally, because I've got about 20 books on the revelation, uh, you know, from different perspectives, and none of them get anywhere near to what Rand and Compare have done. So I, my basic point is just forget about all those other contemporary authors. They have no idea. I mean, they're totally clueless. But uh, Compare and Rand will give you a really good historical, uh, what is it, step-by-step, year-by-year analysis of what uh, what these verses are talking about. For example, in uh, in Rand's analysis, the church at Ephesus which means, according to him, according to his analysis, he chooses the word desirable. Early congregation, he gives it a uh, a year period from 30 to 64 A.D., saying that this is a loosely organized church in which the leaders are true shepherds interested only in serving the flock, which is what the elders of the flock are supposed to be, and that the Nicolaitans are condemned as hierarchical as a hierarchical mutation, <laughs> right? They're Christian Pharisees, basically, of this church, which seeks to rule over the flock rather than the servant. And when we get to that verse, we find that Yahshua praises the church at Ephesus for not accepting the perversions and the traditions of the Nicolaitans. Okay? So, uh, continuing here now, let me reread verse 2. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil, and that's the way we Christians are supposed to be. We're not supposed to tolerate evil. When we find it in our midst, we're supposed to get rid of it and the people who practice it. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and they got rid of these people. Praise Yahweh. That's the way we're supposed to do it. Verse 3, And have borne and have patience, and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted or grown weary of doing your duty. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have something against you because you have left your first love. And I know you want to probably elaborate on what you think that is. Their first well, well love. I just did. I just read three paragraphs from my notes on that. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's Paul, yeah, you know, Paul established that, that assembly. 
and their first love must be the gospel that Paul brought to them. Okay. They Very must good. have been, as Paul warns in Acts twenty twenty nine, they must have been corrupted from that uh-huh. yeah. between the time that Paul was arrested and the time that, because Paul spent two years, I think it was, in Ephesus. He spent a great deal of time there. Between that, that time and the time of the revelation given to John, which is 90 something AD, right? 92, yeah. 94 AD, that, that church must have, that assembly must have been corrupted. Yeah. That yeah. they must have turned from the gospel to some heresy or another. Yeah. There, there were many heresies in the first. Oh, election. absolutely. But apparently even what they did do was not all that horrible, certainly not as horrible as Judeo-Christianity is today. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you are fallen and repent. There's that word repent. Now this this is New Testament, folks. (laughs) This is after Jesus Christ has died. Okay? We're still supposed to repent if we do wrong. And do the first works. What are the first works, Bill? Well, well, the first works must be from the gospel. Love your brother and, and serve your brother and, and um, build, edify your community. Uh-huh. That, that's the, that's the, um, the instructions that we have from the gospel. Build the kingdom, yes. Do what it was required to build the kingdom. And, and if you love me, keep my commandments. Right, right. And, and love your brother as I, I have loved you. Uh-huh. Love your brethren as yourselves, right? Or else I will come to you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of its place. Here we go again. Except you repent. This is post-crucifixion. The antinomians are always telling us, well, we, we've, we were all saved at the cross, and there's no more sin. There's nothing for us to worry about. All we have to do is wait for the second coming and believe in Jesus, and we're saved. Verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I remember um, we did a show about this quite some time ago, maybe even a year ago, and a couple of the researchers I looked up uh, asserted that the Nicolaitans, in addition to whatever else they may have been, they were also teaching a form of antinomianism and that uh, that the people were already saved and didn't have to repent. Well, well, yes, they were, and I think that there's, there's, there's a lot to the Nicolaitans. I have a couple of paragraphs here if you want to see it, if, sure. if you want to hear it. Oh, absolutely. The, um, fr- from the early church writers. Okay. About the Nicolaitans. There, there are several accounts, and none of them, none of them are complete by any means. And we could tell that when we compare them. Of the sect of the Nicolaitans in the early Christian writings. Now, I personally have said in the past that I doubted the existence of this sect at all in reality, and I rather believe that the words described a class of people. Right. Now, now I still do. And, and, however, I realize that there may have at one time been such a sect, and, and that's a possibility, but it seems that if it existed, it could not have existed for long. And, and the word still defines a certain behavior among a certain class of people here. And, 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 and I believe that because of the sketchiness of the accounts of the, the, the um, early Christian writers, right? Yeah. Now, no, let me say that as for such an early sect, Irenaeus, who I, I, I believe is, was a good and authentic Christian, right? Irenaeus believed that they existed. And in his Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 26, he said that they lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. 
However, the Greeks had more than their share of hedonists who did that. So that's nothing special in right, Greece. Right. And therefore, there must be more to the story. And, and there is, because if we read on, Irenaeus also said that to them, quote, it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and ah. to eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh-huh. Now, later in his treatise, in Against Heresies, Book 3, Irenaeus gives this in Chapter 11. John, the disciple of the Lord, preaches this faith and seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to remove that error which by Corinthus, we remember a Corinthus that wouldn't accept the apostle John and his companions in his epistles, right? Mm -hmm. Remove that error which by Corinthus had been disseminated among men and a long time previously by those who were termed Nicolaitans Mm -hmm. and who are an offset of that quote-unquote knowledge falsely so-called so it seems like they took some of the heresies that later became Gnosticism, right? Right. That he might confound them and persuade them that there is but one God who made all things by his world and not as they allege that the Creator was one but the Father of the Lord another and that the Son of the Creator was forsooth one but the Christ from above was another. So really, the, Irenaeus is saying that these Nicolaitans had 10 or 20 gods. Okay. <laughs> they were, every time they're mentioned, that, and, and we have Jews that try to convince Christians of that thing today. Right, and they also right. accuse adultery and sacrificing to idols. Well, well right, exactly. Okay, so, exactly they're, 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 right. so they're Jews. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and the Son of the Creator was forsooth one, but the Christ from above another, who was also continued impossible, descending upon Jesus, the Son of the Creator. He flew back again into his pleroma or his form, and that Monogenes was the beginning, but Logos was the son of Monogenes. And, and, and it seems like a whole lot of Jewish psychobabble is basically, right. I'm not going to eat it all, but that's basically what. Irenaeus describes the Nicolaitans as here uh, a whole lot of Jewish psychobabble. Uh-huh. Ignatius, in his early epistle to the Trallian, says this, The impure Nicolaitans, falsely so-called, who are lovers of pleasure, and then he also says, and given to calumnious speeches. In his epistle to the Philadelphians in chapter 6, which is actually entitled, Do Not Accept Judaism, uh-huh. we find that if anyone confesses the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and raises and praises the creation, but calls the incarnation merely an appearance and is ashamed of the passion, such a one has denied the faith not less than the Jews who killed Christ. If anyone confesses these things and that God the Word did dwell in a human body, being within it as the Word, even as the soul also is in the body, because it was God that inhabited it and not a human soul. In other words, he's equating God and Christ, right? But affirms that unlawful unions are a good thing and places the highest happiness and pleasure, as does the man who is falsely called a Nicolaitan. (laughs) This person can neither be a lover of God nor a lover of Christ, but is a corrupter of his own flesh, and therefore void of the Holy Spirit and a stranger to Christ. And, And he goes on. Right now, now two. Now, these are two of the earliest witnesses. Right, Ignatius okay. is, um, and Irenaeus are both in the second century A.D. Now, now, Tertullian 
And, and Clements of Alexandria was generally, his writing was pretty good, except for the pseudo-Clement, which is all garbage. And, and Tertullian, a lot of his writing was very good. He, he very Catholic, and he was a, a, a different kind of Montanist, but he, he had some errors. But he was, for the most part, an honest man and, and a good defender of Christianity. And, and they also discussed the Nicolaitans on several occasions, while some early Christian writers, notably Tertullian, took for granted a story that they were founded by the early Christian Nicholas, who was mentioned in Acts chapter 6. However, Clement, in his Elucidations, Book 2, Chapter 20, relates that the sect consisted of men who actually perverted the instructions and precepts of that Acts chapter 6 Nicholas, and therefore they became known by his name. Mm-hmm. So Nicholas is not responsible okay. for the Nicolaitans, even though Tertullian took it for granted that he was. Uh-huh. Right? Okay. It, it's men that had perverted the word. But by the time of Irenaeus, we really had no Nicolaitans. So it was a short-lived sect, yeah. but they seemed to be forerunners to the Gnostics, and other Jewish sects that set out to refute and to discredit Christianity. Right. Well, and that's, yeah, Guest 22 suggested that they were the forerunners to the Catholic Church. You know. Well, well, that too, but uh-huh. that, that, uh, there's no doubt uh-huh. that they, the Catholic Church what was, you know, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, they weren't all perfect, but they were all good men. They were Christian bishops and Christian writers at a time when you really stuck your neck out in order to preach the gospel. These men took a great risk of their lives to write the things that they wrote. And and when Christianity became legitimate in the time of Constantine, and, and these men never mentioned the term Christian priest, right? Yeah. It doesn't exist until the time of Eusebius, and, and who was a, a contemporary of Constantine the Great. From the time of Constantine the Great, when Christianity became tolerated, when it was made legal, then we see the perversion of Christianity, the coming into Christianity of a pagan priesthood, the, the mixture of Christian ideals with right. pagan rites and rituals, and, and the people conquerors appear. The political opportunists come out of the woodwork and and infiltrate what for three centuries, even though it wasn't always, um, uh, they didn't always agree with each other, for three centuries we had a sincere Christianity. Yes. Where once the political opportunists, when, when it was no longer risky to be a Christian, the political opportunists came out of the woodwork and started corrupting Christianity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, it would because uh, last night we talked at length about the Pharisees, who seem to emerge as a sect of their own, and the, and the word Pharisee means separate. Okay, it sounds like something similar was going on here with the Nicolaitans, with the intention of establishing. Maybe it didn't really blossom, but with possibly the intention of establishing a a dictatorship over the proletariat, <laughs> right? Well, well, exactly. It's the same It's the same con men that have been trying yeah. to manipulate people for years. This right. goes down my mind. That's why in my translation of, of the Revelation and of the New Testament, I translated the word Nicolaitans. 
I translated yes. it from what its Greek components meant. Uh-huh. I rendered it the people conquerors. Right, conquerors of the people, exactly, yes. We yeah. are all brothers. Yeah. We have one master, one teacher, one leader, that is Christ. We are all equals. And, and a yeah. people conqueror, to me, is a man who wants to rule over his brethren right. with special knowledge, the right. dispensation of rites and rituals, right. mysteries that you can't know, but I know them. A as false priest. Yeah. As early as the time. Well, well let me say something. Uh, in Livy. Okay, in Livy, in a context that's fit, that fits around the um, Livy's a pagan historian of Rome, right? Okay. He's a great historian of Rome, but he's a pagan, and and he lives in the same century as Julius Caesar, and and he um, he said of the Roman priesthood, the pagan Roman priesthood, because the Romans had uh, writings to support their priesthood, right? They had the Sibylline oracles, right? that the, the priesthood withheld the scriptures in order to rule over men. Well, now you know where the Catholics got it from. Yeah. But the Catholic Church didn't start out that way. A lot of them were that way. A lot of the independent bishops were that way. But even in the time of Bede, if you read Bede, the British historian of the, the Catholic Church in Britain, if you read Bede, you'll find that in his time, Men were translating the scriptures into the vernacular Saxon language from Latin and Greek. Bede says that uh-huh. explicitly. Okay. So, so the Catholic Church wasn't always everywhere Nicolaitan, but it was often in most places Nicolaitan. And, and after the, um, the, the 12th or 13th centuries and, and the time of the establishment of the College of Cardinals, then the Catholic Church became a complete tyranny. Yes, yes. Okay, so that it would be correct to say that this expression Nicolaitanes does mean conquerors of the people. Well, but, right, it's from the Greek words, it's from the adjective nikos or the verb niko, which means to conquer, uh-huh. the adjective or the um, and the Greek word laos, which means people. Right. Like laetins is like the our word laity. Laity comes yes. from that same Greek word laos. It means the people. Yeah. And nicolaitins are those who overrule the people or yes. overcome or, right. or, over- or dictate to. Yes, yes. Not in the sense of militarily, but in the sense of taking over doctrine and and telling them what true doctrine is and what false doctrine is. Right. As opposed to leaving it to the elders of the congregations that Paul and, and possibly the other apostles had set up. Okay? All right. Verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of course, it should say congregations. To him that overcomes, not to him that waits to be raptured, folks. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I know you want to talk about this concept of tree of life. Well, well right. Christ is the tree of life, mm-hmm. he himself. And, and we see a tree, if we go to the end of the Revelation, and, and we'll, that's where I really planned on talking about it, right? Uh-huh. If we go to the end of the Revelation, we'll see that there's a tree that bears 12 manner of fruits. That has to be the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Which yes. grows in the city of God by the river of life, right. but which is, is all representative of the Adamic race. Uh-huh. The tree of life is actually, the first time we see it is in Genesis 3.23. 
Right. The first promise of salvation is Genesis 3.23, where it says, after the fall of Adam, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and the curse is pronounced on him for the sin of him and, and for Eve, likewise. We see a promise that lest the man reach out and grasp the tree of life and eat and live forever. Yes. That is the first messianic prophecy. Right, right. Yeah, and Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. <laughs> okay, it is a racial tree. Not, not a lot a of people would say Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy. Genesis 3.15 was used to illustrate the struggle between Christ being the, the you know, the representative of the race of Adam. Right. And, and the serpent, you know, the serpent being the representative of the race of the devil. Uh-huh. But Genesis 3.15 isn't properly a messianic prophecy because it's talking about two racial seed lines That's right. and not about individuals. Yes, yes. And it doesn't really mention the messianic. It's not messianic in tone at all, Genesis right. 3.15. It, well, it, well, right. It's all about this coming struggle. Right. Genesis 3.23 is a clear messianic prophecy. Yeah. Read yeah. out, grasp the tree of life, and live forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I give to eat of the tree of life, which means that you have to hold on to your Adamic DNA <laughs> If you lose your Adamic DNA, then you're not part of this tree of life, period. Well, well right. He's the vine and we are the branches. Right. And, and it, it's, um, he, he took credit. Christ took credit. He is Yahweh coming to flesh, and, and he took credit for sowing the good seed. Right. The, the seed, right. the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. They were sown by the Son of Man. He mm-hmm. is the tree of life, we are each leaf. Every Adamite is a leaf on that tree. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So to complete the verse here, to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And of course, this paradise of God could be a reference back to the Garden of Eden. could also be a reference to the fact that ultimately the true Eden will be restored, right? Well, well, right. We started in paradise and we'll end in That's paradise. Right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Okay, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And, of course, Christ died for us and has risen. And that any uh, any church that teaches something besides that doctrine is not is not a Christian church. Uh, let me just uh, summarize here what uh, uh, Howard Rand, you know, has to say about the Smyrna. It means bitterness and trial, which and it's a reference to the persecuted church under the Roman occupation from the year 64 A.D. to 313 A.D. And in his book, he gives uh, detailed explanations for choosing those dates. You know, but uh, go ahead with uh, your analysis here, Bill. Well, well, Smyrna is ointment. It's a special ointment. It's used for anointing. Okay. This assembly was not criticized by Yahshua. And in fact, there were only two assemblies which were not criticized at all. Those of Smyrna and those of Philadelphia. Right. Since Smyrna refers to the ointment used for anointing, 
and only the people of Israel, along right. with Christ himself, of are, course, anointed. are yeah. the anointed. And yeah. I have a paper, Christogenia, Yahweh's anointed the children of Israel, which sets forth the biblical proofs. And since Philadelphia means brotherly love, mm-hmm. it is fully apparent that those who recognize the scope of the covenants as being for the anointed only, and then put to practice that recognition by loving their fellow Israelite brethren, those people will not be criticized or condemned by Christ at the judgment. Right. Very good. It also happens that these two assemblies, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the only two assemblies to which Yahweh mentions explicitly the adversary, which is the synagogue of Satan, uh-huh. who are those children of Satan who claim to be Judah, and they are not. Right. These are the Kenite, Canaanite, Edomite tribes who had infiltrated Judea in the centuries before Christ, adopted Judaism in name, became circumcised, and were left to be known as Jews in the Christian era when all of the real Judahites either died in the wars or converted to Christianity. These people have actually and literally descended from tribes of the enemies of Yahweh our God. Right, right. And and I could cite Ezekiel 35 and 36, Paul in Romans 9, Yahshua himself in Luke chapter 11 and John chapters 8 and 10 to support this. Now, therefore, it is evident that since the synagogue of Satan is only mentioned to these two assemblies, that the adversary would persecute these two assemblies above all others because they observe the racial aspects of the covenant. Right. That's why they're being warned about it. You want to keep your race, yes. recognize the anointed, have brotherly love, and, and be a true Christian. You better know about the synagogue of Satan because they're going to come after you. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's let's quote verse 9, which is one of the two famous synagogue of Satan verses. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, and of course, our people never have as much money as the Jews, right? But well, you well, are ri- Yeah. I'll, I'll wait until you're done with the rest. Yeah. I'm sorry. But you are rich, of course, we are rich in tradition and in brotherhood, at least we're supposed to be. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Judeans. It would be the correct translation, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Of course, we know that in the days of Christ and in the subsequent days that we're talking about here as well, there were Judaizers who were actually true Judaites, but who were followers of the Pharisees. And we have the Edomite Pharisees, the true Jews that we you know, use the word for today. And that they definitely are the synagogue of Satan. Uh, and But a lot of people don't make the distinction between the Judahite followers of the Pharisees, who were actually our kinsmen, but were falsely practicing their religion, namely Judaism, instead of converting to Christianity. And and what do we have today? We have millions of Christians practicing Judaism in Judeo-Christianity. It's not Christianity anymore. That's right. There's nothing Christian about Judeo-Christianity. That's right. Now, Now, the assembly at Smyrna was poor, but that they perceive themselves to be poor, but they are wealthy. This means that while they have no earthly riches, they have stored up riches in heaven Uh through their behavior here in this world by keeping their anointing, the racial Israelite-only aspects of the covenants. That's what the anointing is. John says the anointing that we have received in his epistle, and he's not talking about non-Israelites, he's only talking to Israelites. They are the only people that have that anointing 
that, that are the children of God in the world. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay, verse 10, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful to death, and I will give you a crown of life. And, of course, uh, Howard Rand goes into great detail about these ten days being the ten different rules of ten, uh, you know, starting with Nero, ten Roman emperors who exacted strict persecutions against Christians, and he names all ten of them. I won't bother going into that today. And what's your perspective, and what is Compare's perspective on this? Well, well, that would seem to Compare had the same perspective that Rand has on this, okay. right? Okay. That that would seem to support. The I don't want to call it dispensational, right? But the the um, right. interpretation that this um, assembly covers a particular period of time, and Rand's assigns that time to be the time of those ten persecutions. Right. I don't know when he reckons the ten persecutions. Okay, well, I, I would think that they started with Claudius and ended with with the the. Yeah, you know, the time of Constantine. Okay, well, here, let me, uh, I found the verses in my article where he um, he identifies day one as uh, Nero, uh, beginning, I guess, in 64 A.D., day two, Domitian, beginning in 95 A.D., uh, Trahan, or Trajan, day three, uh, beginning in 107 A.D., day four, Hadrian, beginning in 127 A.D., day five, Marcus Aurelius, 165 A.D., day 6, Septimus, Septimus Severus, 202 A.D., day 7, Maximus, 235 A.D., day 8, Decius, or Decius, I guess it would be in, in Greek, 249 A.D., day 9, Valerianus, 257 A.D., and then day 10 would be Diocletian, 303 to 313 A.D., and uh, some say that Diocletian was actually the worst of all 10. <laughs> okay. Well, well, there may have been, you know, there may have been um, others. I haven't studied all of the persecutions of Christians in Rome. We're starting this in, in let's say John wrote this in 96 A.D., right? Just, it, it may have been 98, right? So if John wrote this in 96, then there are persecutions already past. This seems to be talking about future 10 days not a past 10 days. However, if we count Nero, there was clearly a persecution of Christians in the time of Claudius. Uh-huh. That's demonstrated from the, the Greek of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul talks about the present violence. Okay. And the King James does that translation, no, that, that Greek, no justice. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the, the, so, so you could say there were 11 persecutions, right? There, uh-huh. there may have been more. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not, I'm not really a student of the persecutions. Right. The, uh, okay. The, the, um, even if we want to accept this 10 days as 10 persecutions that, that are going to come upon this assembly, that still doesn't necessitate the fact that this assembly represents a given period, a definite period of time. Do you mm. see what I mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah, you know, you can be persecuted 10 days and still be a Christian afterwards, right? Sure, I, I mean. <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, now the, this uh, this town of Smyrna, 
what uh, what stood apart? Uh, do you know historically what uh, stood Smyrna apart from these other congregations? Uh, do you have any information on that? Well, well none of these. Yeah, you know, there's there's really nothing. Okay. None, none of these towns have any special um, ha- have any special history. That they're all pretty um, obscure. I, I mean, okay. Pergamus is hardly mentioned by the historians, except where Attalus makes it famous. Uh-huh. And, and um, right. he's a great um, companion and ally of Rome, but Pergamus itself, it, it was a provincial capital, but it really wasn't a special city to, in, in ancient history or in Christian history, and neither was Smyrna. And, and Smyrna was actually a pretty obscure town in, in many respects. Okay. It, it was never a capital. It was looted by the Cimmerians. It, it was destroyed by the Cimmerians. It was taken by the Ionians. It was taken by the Persians and looted again by the Persians. All of Asia was a very rich, um, very, very rich land at this time, right? It wasn't like the Turks have it today, right? Uh-huh. Where, where you need 10 million Turkish lira to make a dollar, right? right. <laughs> and we know how bad the dollar is, so imagine how bad the Turkish lira is. Right. Well, it was well, probably rich Turks, agriculturally, too. But, right. At this time, it was a very rich land, both in, in um, resources and in agriculture. It, it was a very... Um, the, the entire western part of Anatolia was a very desirable land. It, it was very wealthy. It was very educated. It was it, it was the, um, the the pinnacle of you know Greek culture was found in in, in eastern and I'm sorry in western Asia Minor. It was very successful and it was always a a um, being struggled over by by the powers east and west, right? The Greeks and and the Persians had always struggled over it, yeah. and, and later the the Romans and 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 the um the, the Greek Syrians of the east had struggled over it for a long time, and and Rome finally won out, and and the Byzantines managed to hold on to it until um the 1300s when when the Turks came and and they took it. But the Turks drove, drove it into the ground. Mm. It, it went from being a paradise. All of the Levant and the East went from being a paradise to a desert under the under the other races. Right, right, yeah. It, it's really incredible the transition. Sure. Well, just look at South Africa today. <laughs> well, right, exactly. That's what happens. Whenever you bring Chinamen, you're going to end up with China. When you right. when you bring Negroes, you're going to end up with Africa. There's no right. doubt. Right. At least the Chinese are good with rice, <laughs> right? <laughs> the blacks aren't good with any form of agriculture. Okay. All right, verse 11. Oh, actually, let me, uh, sorry, let me read uh, the rest of uh, verse 10. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful to death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, I understand that there's two different words. Uh, in the Greek, translated as crown, what well, isn't one uh, diadem? One means a crown of victory, and the other means a crown of uh, leadership or royalty. Which one, which word do we have here? Uh, this one couldn't be the one of royalty. Well, well, this is Stephanon. I, I have it as a prize. Okay. Because Steph- Stephanus was, it's the word we get Stephen from, right? Right. It's Stephanus. I read the accusative case, I'm sorry. Okay. The, the, um, a Stephanus was technically a crown. Okay. I have translated it a prize because crowns were given out as prizes in the game. Uh, right, okay. Now we have medals. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
so oh, so so it was a crown of reward or a crown of victory, okay, as opposed to a crown of royalty here. Okay, very good. Verse eleven: He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. He that overcomes shall not be hurt at the second death. And again, you have to be an overcomer. What uh, what Greek word are we dealing here with? In the word, in the concept of overcoming, the same word, nikos. That nik, nikao is is to overcome. Okay, it's so the same word that that um, Nicolaitans comes from. Okay, okay. So that those of us who are conquer the world, in other words, those of us who conquer this present evil world, will be the ones who are not hurt at the second death. So this is a very active term it doesn't mean we can be passive christians and and be overcomers and it's talking about being victorious over evil isn't that what we're talking about here well absolutely it, it it's absolutely we have to you know in, in in ancient in the ancient world with commitment went meant a lot right yeah and, and if you claim if you commit yourself to christ and call yourself a christian and then in the face of trial or adversity, you deny your faith, you're not an overcomer. Right. <laughs> That's right. And as, as soon as you compromise, compromise, I like to say, was the second sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Adam compromised. Eve, yeah. Eve swallowed the bait, mm-hmm. and Adam compromised yes. by going along with her. Right. So, so once, once you make your commitment to God and you compromise, well, well, then what's he going to do? He's going to spew you out of his mouth. Yes, yes. And uh, therefore, neither Adam and Eve were overcomers, as we well know, right? As we very well know. Okay. So, and then <laughs> your your backbone becomes a jellyfish, and that's what the uh, modern churches have today. They don't have backbones; they have jellyfish. Uh, and all they can do is lay flat on their backs and wait to be raptured. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he which has a sharp sword with two edges. Okay, now what's this two-edged sword that we're talking about? Well, well, that's the sword that comes out of his mouth, right? Mm -hmm. That's the truth of the word. The, The truth of the word, as I think it was Peter it may have been Paul, I, I forget, that, that cleaves the flesh right to the bone, right? Yes. That, that, um, that the truth is able to kill and, and to give life. And, and that's the way it is. It, it's the truth. The word of God will either destroy you or, or give you life. Yes. And, and that depends on what you are and, and whether or not you accept it, right? Well, well, the sharp two-edged sword, as we'll see later in this book, is the word that comes out of his mouth. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, now Rand uses uh, the definition or description of elevation for the Church of Pergamos, and he describes it as be, as meaning specifically freedom from persecution, and ascribes it to the time that Constantine legalized Christianity, or at least the de illegalized Christianity, right? And, well. well. Yeah. Right. That's all interpretative, right? Sure. That's all interpretation. It, Pergamos was originally in the name of the citadel of ancient Troy, but the later later the word came to describe any 
citadel. Ah. This later Pergamus was the seat of the famous Italid kingdom of the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. The, the Italid? The, the Italic kingdom, the, the Attalids, the A-T, Attalus, A-T-T-A-L-L-U-S. No, no, the Italid, right, Attalus, A-T-T-A-L-L-I-D. That this kingdom founded by Attalus, it, it was actually from, it, it was a remnant of the old kingdom of Thrace, right, which okay. fell apart with um, Philip of, the time of Philip of Macedon. Now, and, and, now Thrace, um, uh, be, be, uh, be, let me interrupt you here. Thrace was uh, an offshoot of what? Wasn't that an Israelite? Uh... Well, well the, no, the Thracians were, um, that they, they had, I believe, an influx of Trojan blood. Okay. And, and the Trojans that were left after the fall of Troy the Illyri- became the Illyrians. The, the Illyrians always had a, a, a large tribe that still maintained the name of Dardans. Actually, Justinian was was okay. a Dardan from Illyrian, yes. And Justinian, that would be northern Italy? Dardans. Well, well, no, Illyria is actually what would be west of Macedonia uh, on that coast of, of the... Um, the agency okay. between, I'm sorry, the Adriatic Sea between um, Italy and Greece. Okay. Right, but right it's on the Italian Greece. side, though, right? No, no, no. It's on. Okay, it's on, so it's on the western, right. western. Or, it, it was the same district was later known as Pannonia. I, I don't even know what it is today. I think it might be Croatia today. Right, something like that. Yeah. Serbia, yeah. Those, whatever. Yeah. Right. Croatia, Serbia, in there. Well, well, the. Um, the, the Thracians were an original tribe. They're mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as Tyrus, right? That oh, okay. They were Pethites, okay, the Thracians. And the Phrygians, I believe, and, and as it states in many of the ancient classical writers, the Phrygians were actually colonists, that they had come from the Thracians. Uh-huh, okay. Except that the Chimerians destroyed, destroyed Phrygia. Now, now the, um, the Thracians, that their power... Um, that were, they were quite strong at times. That they were um, conquered by the Persians. That they had problems, with, you know, with, with being between Persia and Greece. That they never eclipsed either of them. Right? That they were like the the um, the kid in the middle. Uh, uh, that's the way I look at it. Anyway, that they were taken by a lot of Scythians came into Thrace in, in the sixth and, and fifth and fourth centuries BC, and and it actually grew into a decent kingdom. And, and it's, I forget exactly how it fell apart, but Philip of Macedon had taken, yeah, you know, had taken control of it. And it became part of Macedonia. When, when the, um, Alexander's great kingdom fell apart, the Attalid kings, Attalus, um, I don't know exactly how his kingdom came out of the kingdom of the Seleucids and, you know, the four mm-hmm. generals that split up Alexander's right. empire. But so it was Greek at one time. Gained, um, yeah. gained a kingdom in in Pergamus, and it lasted for a couple of hundred years, maybe 150 years. And um, it, it, they were they were great allies of Rome. Uh-huh. They were all. I think that they saw that Rome was coming, and weren't, weren't they weren't going to be stopped? Right. Yeah. The Italian kings Attalus fought a um, a great battle against the Galatahi in the third century, who invaded. The area they sacked um, many of the temples of Ionia and 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 Greece and they tried to sack Pergamus 
and they were defeated by Adolescent Pergamus. Oh, okay. And they were defeated, but they weren't defeated badly. They negotiated okay. a, a parcel of land, and Adolus gave them, the, he added in his tower, to, to settle them in the land that later became known as Galatia. Oh, okay. And that was the founding of Galatia. What was the Celts that were invading the Galatahi were Scythians, right? They were invading Greece, and, and they lost the battle to Attalus of Pergamus, and he settled them in Galatia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, uh, now, excuse me. what did you say the uh, Greek Pergamos actually means? Well, well Pergamus, the way to Pergamus was the seat of the famous Italic kingdom of the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. Towards the end of the 3rd century B.C., Pergamus defeated the invading Galatahi. Yeah. I'm just trying to finish right now. I have a, a bit to go, right? Yeah. Who then negotiated a deal with its king in which they settled in a portion of the ancient land of Phrygia, which then became known as Galatia. The, the, um, I, I passed it up already. Yeah. Pergamus is perge. It, it means tower, and, and Pergamus means um, tower-like almost, and, and it's a, it means a citadel. Oh, okay, right, citadel. Yeah. Okay. You said that, but I forgot. Right, very right. good. Okay. Now, now um, the Italic kings were very wealthy. Attalus was very, very wealthy. And Pergamus was a treasury of great riches. And it was also a center of worldly learning. And Strabo states that it was well populated with all sorts of philosophical sects. Mark Antony allegedly once sent 200,000 volumes huh. from the library of Pergamus to Alexandria. Later, Pergamus was the capital of the Roman district of Asia, and which was most all of eastern Anatolia. Of, I'm sorry, western Anatolia, right? Western, what we know today is western Turkey, and it had a very large and famous altar, which was excavated rather recently, and it was believed to be dedicated to Zeus. With certainty, this altar dates to the time of Attalus, and and it depicts things from his defeat of the Galatians and, and other events in, in, um, in his history. The staircase up to this altar was 20 meters wide in itself, and, and the altar was 35 meters wide. So this is a big altar, right? Yeah. The base is decorated with a frieze depicting the battle between the gods and the giants, which is a famous Greek story, which I believe was probably handed down from the Old Testament scriptures. Right. Pergamus was the administrative center of a very rich pro province. It was also a center of worship of Asclepius, the ancient Greek pagan god of medicine and healing, and it was therefore a center for pharmakia, right, pharmaceuticals. Okay. But there were more famous temples of Asclepius in Epidaurus and in Kos. So I can't really say from any of the history that I have from what I've read why Pergamus is called Satan's seat. Okay. And, and I know what Compare says about that, mm -hmm. but it's just not right, and I will demonstrate that here. Okay. That the, um, the Asclepius cult of Pergamus was large and strong and influential, but uh, I don't think, you know, it was eclipsed by those at, at the Epidaurus and Kos, so I don't think that that alone is what's being pointed out here. Uh -huh. And, and it, it's hard for me to determine why okay. Pergamus is called Well, let, let me read that verse, because I haven't read that one. Uh, verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, 
who was slain among you where Satan dwell. Okay. Now, the information that I was able to dig up about uh, re- referencing Satan's seat, uh, Douglas Reed, in his book on the Jews, Controversy of Zion, asserts that Pergamos was the home to a Jewish uh, yeshiva at this time. Well, well, right, but there were probably a thousand Jewish yeshivas yeah. at this time. Well, uh, he, he traces, like, the major one from Babylon that are actually... The major one tra- uh, was transplanted from Babylon to Pergamos. Uh, here, let me quote uh, what I say about this in my article. The Christian church at Pergamos existed in the veritable belly of the beast where Satan dwells. Pergamos was the seat of the Babylonian Talmudists at this time, having been transferred from Babylon six centuries earlier. With the advent of the sects of the scribes and Pharisees, in the land of Judah, around 150 B.C., these Babylonian teachings were gradually and systematically incorporated into the law of Moses. Dr. Wesley Swift asserts that Herod actually received training at Pergamos. Okay? So that would be the connection you know, from the sources that, that I've read that uh, would symbolize Satan's seat here. Okay? And then now, you hold fast my name... So obviously, and of course it's true of us today, we Christian Israelites are surrounded or, you know, we have the mystery Babylon system in our midst. And, you know, as you say, that wasn't all that uncommon in those days. Uh, But uh, it it seems that both uh, Swift and Reed are asserting that this was actually a major Jewish teaching center at this time. Well, well, you know, it, it was definitely a major city. It wasn't on a par with the modern equivalents of New York or London, uh-huh. but, right? But it was a, a regional capital city. There's no doubt it was a major city. And wherever you have a major city that's also <laughs> a provincial capital, yes. you're going to have a lot of Jews. That's a There's synagogue. no synagogue. Yes. Well, well, right, and, and very large synagogues and, and everything else that comes with a, a lot of Jews. Yes. Now, I have a um, – Josephus records one degree of Pergamum in favor of the Judeans in Antiquities 14, but he recorded a lot of letters like that, and that's the only entry for Pergamus in Josephus. So I, I really don't have a whole lot of insight. If Douglas Reed can document what he states there – Oh yeah. That- that- he that's what his book is all about. He traces the uh, Babylonian Talmud back into history, you know, uh, uh, and then forward into history. And so, well, well, right. But to me, to, in order to qualify here, yeah, you know, it, it it's not really that that can there can't be more than one Satan seat in the world. Right? Oh, right. No, no. I, yeah, you know, but I, I would think that this. Um, school of Jewish learning would have to be notable in, in some special way compared to all the others to merit, to warrant this, uh-huh. this mention. Yeah. I think, he was, yeah, I think he's just referring to the size of it and to the fact that it, uh, it, it was transplanted from Babylon to Pergamos at, at a previous time. Right. Okay. Now, now let me say that Compare had um, repeated something that Alexander Hislop Try to um, oh, well, the two Babylons. He, yeah, yes, in, in the two Babylons. Compare repeated this, and and the claim, and and I have to bring this out 
because I think it's a huge mistake in Christian identity. Okay. Right? And, and I believed it at one time because I, I respect Compare, right? Sure. That, that's just the way it is. But we have to um, re- realize that we can all screw up and, and constantly correct ourselves. That's the way it is. Yeah. That the, um, the Pontifex Maximus title at Rome of the high priest, and, and which Caesar himself held, Julius Caesar, right? That yeah. I believe this is a huge identity error that, that it came from Pergamus through the, the ancient Kenite priesthood at Babylon. Oh, okay. And, and that's because I can well document that this, Eumenes, you know, Hislop tried to say that the last king of Pergamus, who was Eumenes II, right? Uh-huh. And, and he did will Pergamus to the Roman people. Yes. He gave his kingdom to the Roman people when he died. Uh-huh. He had no heirs, right? This is 159 BC that he died, right? And Hislop tries to claim that he also gave this title somehow, this Pontifex Maximus title, which the Roman, um, the, the Bishop of Rome called the Pope has adopted for himself, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, that, that is absolutely true, that the, bish- the Pope adopted the title Pontifex Maximus from the ancient pagan Roman priesthood. There's no doubt about that, uh-huh. okay? But it doesn't come from Pergamus. Yeah. Diodorus Siculus gives historical citations uh, that, that date from 202 B.C. in the fragments of his 27th book where he stated that, quote, as Pontifex Maximus, he, meaning... Um, yeah. Licinius Crassus, who, who, who was the consul in 202 BC, right? He was the co-consul with Sulla, Sulla where, where the Romans had always elected two consuls, okay? Uh-huh. Theodorus is talking about Crassus, who was the council, consul that year with Sulla. This is 202 BC. Theodorus said, as Pontifex Maximus, he was obliged by reason of his religious duties not to absent himself from the vicinity of Rome. Mm-hmm. So we have right there a clear historical citation right. that the title Pontifex Maximus existed in Rome 60 years, right. 40 years before the death of Eumenes II in Pergamus. Right. Okay? Yes. So Hislop's story about that is just wrong. Yeah. In, Livy, in, in Livy's third book, chapter 54, right, we see that he mentions a Quintus Furius who held the office of Pontifex Maximus in Rome circa 447 B.C. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, uh, guest 22 uh, says that Pontifex Maximus in Latin means bridge builder. Well, well is... it means the chief bridge builder or the chief bridge, too. And, and they that the, the Roman priests were called pontiffs, right? Yes. That right. That they were the bridges to the god. Okay. The yes. And if you're the chief bridge builder or the chief bridge, you, you know, you are the line to God. The, the highway to the God. Believes, <laughs> the Pope believes that he is the line to God. That's right. Okay? He, or at least, I don't know if the Popes really believe that, but they sure as hell want us to believe that. <laughs> right, right. And the title officially meant High Priest of Jupiter, according to many scholars. Well, well yes, that, that was what the title inferred in Rome. Uh-huh. Jupiter was um, Jove. Jupiter was Jove. Okay. Jove, it was actually, Paul told the Romans they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. Uh, Jove is Yahweh. Right. Okay? 
Jupiter right. is a contraction of Jove Pater or Yahweh Father. Uh-huh. Very good. And, and th- this office of Pontifex Maximus is said by Theodore Siculus and others to have existed from the time of Aeneas. Uh-huh. Okay? It's as old as the sojourn from Troy. Now, whether that's true or not, well, well, we really don't have records that old that say that, but we do have old Roman writers that claim that. The problem with that claim is that the time of Aeneas is a, a, a thousand years before the time of Livy, right? Uh-huh. I mean, there is a good deal of space in there. So, so these claims may not exactly be true, but there are historical, many historical citations that can be pointed out to show that Alexander Hislop was just wrong, uh-huh. and identity should not follow him in believing that this title came from Pergamus. Right. It's, it's Absolutely, not. yeah. And, and, and Hislop's work has to be considered suspect anyway, because he simply equates the second Babylon with the Catholic Church and doesn't say a word about the Jews. Well, well, right. But he, you know something? I've got to defend Hislop a little bit, right? Okay. He's a Scottish reformer, and he's a propagandist against the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we can't, that's what we he, can't fault him for that, right? <laughs> no, well, no, we can't. But that's His book is basically propaganda against the Roman Catholic Church, but it shouldn't be taken as history because that, that's a major inaccuracy, right? I mean, anybody that could pick up the classic, I, I can't stress how badly we need to get rid of errors like this, even if the, the men we, we respect most like comprehensive words, even if they follow them. We have to get rid of errors like this, because when you repeat this to anybody who's learned, they're going to pick up Theodore Siculus, they're going to pick up Livy, and they're going to say, look at this, are you kidding me? We have to purge these errors out of Christian identity mm-hmm. if we're going to really have credibility. Right. Right. And I'm not saying that I can't make a mistake. I sure as hell can make a mistake, sure, sure. but I pray to God that I can correct my own. Right, that, right. Well, we, I mean, we, we're, we're all limited to the sources that we quote from, right? You know? Well, and, well right. And well, we shouldn't. Uh, I'm sorry. When talking yeah. about ancient times, we should quote ancient sources. We'll be a lot better off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, third hand sources and. Right. And, and different scholars have different opinions, but we, we also have to understand that the Catholic Church, although it was the sixth beast, is not the only beast that Revelation speaks of, right? And all of these Seventh-day Adventist types, and you know, Hislop feeds into that, that uh, the, there's only one beast, and that's the Catholic Church. And that's not well, true. Well, right. Well, you, you know, maybe if we were alive in the 1400s, we'd have been led to believe that, too. Uh, right. Certainly. Oh, but now we know better. Right now we know better. Exactly. So that doesn't make him wrong, necessarily. But, uh, you know, I'm always suspicious of any uh, historian who leaves out, the, who, who, who doesn't address the question of Jewish influence and Jewish beasts, <laughs> besides just the Catholic beasts. Well, well, right. What they should have realized was, was that what made the church really evil was the Jews behind it. That's right. Because the Medici's and the Borgias, they weren't Christians. Right. A lot of those other popes that were oppressive. They were and, and, yeah, yeah, they weren't Christians. Right. They bought their way into the papacy. That's literally what they did. Yes, very good. Okay, verse 14. Uh, oh, wait a minute, wait. Uh, I don't think we uh, covered uh, the rest of 13 here because 
my name and have not the, they hold, you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwell. Now who's this Antipas? Well, well, you know, and and this is I hate to keep beating up on Bertrand Compare, right? But this is <laughs> well, I, I just, write about everything. Neither are you or me, right? <laughs> well, well, right, right. Well, people are going to think I'm beating up on a guy, and I'm really not. I, no, I, he's, guy, he's, a, he's an identity he icon, right? <laughs> he taught me a ton, and and he really did. But Auntie Compare said that Antipas means against the father, okay? And, and he extended that to mean against the Pope. Well, uh, there was no Pope in the right. Now, now, what Copperate did right here was he did um, examine and find that in the early Christian writers, there's no specific records in the early Christian writings of an actual modern named Antipas. Uh-huh. That doesn't mean that he didn't exist. Right. But, I, yeah, you know, we have no record of him today. Now, uh-huh. now um, Antipas, I believe the chronology, yeah, you know, this pas, meaning father, that chronology isn't found in any old book, okay, until 1150 A.D. Mm. in a work known as the Etymologicum Magnum. Now, now that's a rather late work, and I would say that it very well could have had some Catholic influence, right? Sure. And and I don't fully trust it. To me, Antipas means, uh, Anti means to to be against, to stand against, to withstand, right? Uh right. And pas is the simple Greek word meaning all. It means all. And and I interpret antipas to mean to withstand everything. Or Mm -hmm. or to it it could mean to stand in place of all or it could mean to stand against all, right? right? Mm -hmm. And and it it could mean that your faith was so strong that you withstood what whatever came at you. Right. Right. it could be interpreted a lot of other ways, but right. I cannot assign that. I have no um, reason in the actual Greek language to believe that pas could have meant pater or father right. at this time in Greek. I, I've never seen yeah. it, so I'm, I'm not going to say it. Understood. So then the suggestion being that the, the, perhaps the word shouldn't even be capitalized, uh, therefore not symbolizing an individual person, but the, those who stood against the you know, evil encroachments against Christianity at this time. Well, I think that it's a symbol. Yeah. I think that it is a person, okay. right? right? And, and it seems to be a proper noun from the Greek text, but it's, it's the, a person who is a symbol, right? Okay. It's not Very a good. real person. It doesn't necessarily have to be a real person that actually is. Or, or even a particular person, but someone like, you know, People had similar experiences, right, and became martyrs. Right. Okay. Now, now let me say that in, in, in defense that this might have actually been a person, that the, the name Antipas really does exist at this time. Okay. Oh, okay. I only dispute the meaning, but one of the Herods was actually named Antipas. Not that I would equate this person anyway. You know, it's just a, a um, more or less a, a, um, a coincidence but one of the Herods, Herods was surnamed Antipas. Uh-huh. So the uh, name did exist that in this period, but okay. I, I dispute the meaning of it as meaning against the Father, and, and I wouldn't think that Christ would call the Pope the Father for anybody to be against him, right? Right. So, so I, I really have a lot of dispute with Compare's yeah. interpretation of yeah. that. Okay, very good, very good. All right, verse 14 but I have a few things against you because you have there them 
that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So that's a big one. Well, well, right. It is a big one. Here, here in the assembly at Pergamos, we see a warning concerning fornication, which is race mixing, much yeah. like the the one that we're going to see a little later at at the against the assembly of Thuatira, right? That they were also told, you know, warned about fornication. Okay. Yes. So, um, it, it's it's evident in the account of Numbers chapters twenty four and twenty five that Balaam was hired to curse the children of Israel. Right. But every time that he tried, he could only utter blessings instead. Yes. Yahweh, Yahweh <laughs> wouldn't let him curse the children of Israel. Right. He, he forced them to bless right. the children of Israel every time he opened his mouth. So, so then we see that Balak, the king of Moab had the women of his tribe go out to seduce the men of Israel. Right. But the the entire account that Balaam had actually instructed Balak to do this is not related to us in the book of Numbers, except in, in that, you know, in Numbers chapters 24 and 25. Yes. But later it's alluded to in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, where it says, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against Yahweh in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague. So, so we see that it was the council of Balaam that right. Balak did that by, right? Yes. Micah 6.5 says, O oh, my people, remember now what Balak the king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Peor answered him. And there we see in those two verses that it was Balaam who told Balak that you, you, I can't curse these people, so right. you send your daughters out there and and have them seduce them, and right. and that'll you know, and and that's very clear what yeah. we see from those other scriptures. If you read Numbers twenty four and twenty five, you won't get that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the um, it, it's very clear that Balaam counseled Balak, and and that's the the error of Balaam, mm-hmm. and and Paul affirms this in one Corinthians chapter ten, where he explains. That the crime behind this very episode was fornication. Yes. And, and when we read the episode, what do we see? A race mixing event. Right. So that means that fornication is race mixing. Right. And uh, certainly in this instance. Yes. Yeah. And of well, course, well, yes, fornication can describe other um, acts of sexual immorality. Yeah. But race mixing is definitely fornication. Right. Now, uh, I want to stick with Numbers 31 here for a little bit. Uh, but before I do that, the the fact is that the Judeo Christians always insist that the sin being described here is simply idol worship, and that uh, it never gets beyond idol worship. And of course, that race mixing is not a sin. That that is what the Judeo Christians always argue. However, the um, when Phineas got hold of of the one Israelite man uh, who was having having literally having sex. With the uh, Midianite or uh, Moabite woman, I forget which it is. And when he confronted them in the tent, he took a javelin and thrust them both through while they were in the act. And that act cleansed the plague that was that was uh, going about, which probably meant some sort of you know, sexually transmitted disease that they had gotten from these non-Israelite women. 
Well, well, it must have been a fast-acting one because they were being struck dead, 25,000 people in a day. That's, yeah. that, that's uh, I wish AIDS worked that fast today. Right. But the um, Numbers 25, verse 1, you're, you're absolutely right. It's excellent to point out the story of Phineas and how he was rewarded for slaying two people with one, with, with one, one spear, right? Yes. He, he slew two people. So that means that they had to be doing what? Right. They had to be... Um, <laughs> Right. And engaged together, right? <laughs> right. One spear to kill two people, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, oh, and, and in Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Okay? If this was about idol worship, it would have said that the people began to commit whoredom with the gods of Moab. Okay. It's about sex. Right. They began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, mm -hmm. not with the gods of Moab. Yeah. This is very clearly a, a – a, um, a, this entire chapter is about the Israelites having sexual relations with these people of the Moabites, and that is – against the will of God. Right. That is fornication. It is race mixing. Yes. It is forbidden. The Israelites were already told back in Exodus chapter 19 they would be a separate people, period. Yes. Yes. Right. And uh, uh, But in Numbers 31, there's an unusual episode which is confusing to very many Christians, and that's where Moses tells the Israelites, after all of this has happened, to kill all the men, kill all the adult, adult women, but save the virgins alive. Well, well, right, but that's because in Numbers chapter 31, we're not dealing with Moabites. Okay. In Numbers chapters 24 and 25, we're dealing with Moabites. Okay. The Moabites, it's very clear, had mingled with the Canaanites whom they dwelt amongst. Okay. But here in Numbers chapter 31, we're dealing with Midianites. Okay, now it's Midianites. Okay. These are Midianites. Even though the, the event of Numbers chapter 24 is referenced here. Yes. Okay. These people are Midianites. All right? And, uh -huh. and the Midianites were descended from Midian, the son of Abraham. Right. Which was told Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Was named Midian, and from him descended the Midianites. These people are um, half brothers of the Israelites. They're Shemites. They're Shemites. Well, but they're not they're, Israelites. They're descended from Abraham. Right. Yeah, you know, they're absolutely. They're, they're Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're pagan Hebrews, but most of yeah. the Adamic world at this time was pagan. <laughs> And even pagan Hebrew women can look pretty good, right? <laughs> so, so well, well, I wouldn't mind trying to convert a few. No. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> Don't waste your time. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, right. Stop. <laughs> and, but here, let me go through this episode here. And this, is, again, is Numbers 31. And Moses said to them, well, here, let me back up to uh, verse 14. And Moses was angry with the officers of the host, with the captains over a thousand and captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said to them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam. So some of these Midianite women were part of this, apparently. Through the council of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of Yahweh. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman 
because the men had already been killed, and kill every woman that has known man by lying with him. But all the women children, that is the little girls, that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. And the only explanation I can offer here, because people have asked me about this, is that while these virgin girls had not yet participated in any pagan sex rituals in the groves or or wherever, and were not likely to have been contaminated with any kind of sexual disease or other kind of disease that would be contracted by these Canaanite rituals. Well, well, absolutely. That, that's very clear that they couldn't have had a chance to become poisoned with the Moabite or, or right. Canaanite blood. That, yes. that, that you know, most of the tribes of this time were racist. Oh, yeah. They did stick to themselves. Mm-hmm. People naturally stuck to themselves. Even the Egyptians. As we see the accounts in, in some of the apocryphal literature, and I believe in Genesis, even the Egyptians wouldn't even eat with the Hebrews. Right. right. So we we have a society that today we don't really understand until you want you go to some foreign countries. Yeah, I have. I speak. To they're very racist. <laughs> right. They're all racist. Yes. And, and they don't want you in their clubs. They don't mm-hmm. want you in, in their um in their homes. They they don't want anything to do with you. As an alien. Now, yeah. now the um, the ancient world was certainly like that, too, most of the time. Yeah. It seems to me that the only race mixing that happened to be going on was amongst the tribes of, of the Canaanites. Right. And, and that's all they did. And, and they didn't care. Well, who are the biggest proponents today of the race mixing but yeah. the descendants of the Canaanites right. that we know as the Jews? That's right. Absolutely. Now, the, um, the Midianites... Had, these Midianites took league with the Moabites against Israel, okay. and for that they were punished. Right. They, Yahweh told, "Kill all their men and all their women that right. have known a man. Yeah. They're all to die." And and the, the girls are good. They're Adamic stock descended from Abraham, uh-huh. okay. and, and they haven't had sexual relations or, or been polluted, right. but with outside influences. So they were told that they could have those girls. Yeah. So yeah. So not understanding all that history, history, it's a very confusing scenario. And of course, it's another instance where the Judeo Christians say, "Oh well, see, it's okay for them to have sex with Midianites, you know, but why, why only with little girls, <laughs> right?" Well, well, right. But if they read their Bible from the beginning yeah. and follow the names and understand what. You can understand of the tribes of people yeah. and and their nature and who they are, then you won't have these problems. You won't have these conflicts. Right. Okay. Verse fifteen. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And of course, we discussed that in great detail. And uh, Yahweh is telling us, or Yahshua is telling us, that he hates these people. And uh, these are the progenitors. These are your Christian Pharisees who is setting up false denominations of so-called Christian religion and using this false doctrine to lord it over the people. That's what these Nicolaitans are. Verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of of thy mouth. Or my mouth, rather. Sorry. So, uh, well, it says them, uh, probably meaning the sinners, Right. So, again, we're told to repent. We must repent. No, no, them meaning the Nicolaitans, I think. Okay. Uh, repent or else uh, or else I will come to you quickly and will, it doesn't make sense. And, and will, 
That, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense that way. It means the sinners. It has to. Okay. If we'll repent, but if I, but if not, I will come to you quickly and I will make war with them. Right. And, and that the, must mean the, the, those, not only the Nicolaitans, but the sinners among them. Very good. Okay. okay, and uh, I will conclude today with verse 17 and pick up with verse 18 with the next church, which will be uh, Thyatira. Now, verse 17, chapter 2, Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. To him, again, here's that word, overcome, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Now, of course, uh, if we're talking about this time, uh, when the revelation was given, would you consider the word Christian to be a new name? Well, well, the word Christian was a new name, but it was already 60 years old by this time. So it was already and, and, that old, okay. And and everybody knew it, right? Yeah. This says, I shall give to him a white stone. It, it's representative of a, a treasure and a name, meaning that that person is going to yeah. the, the white stone being like the white cloaks. Right. You see later, we've washed our garments in the blood of the Lamb, mm-hmm. and now we have shining new white garments. And it's just, I believe, symbolic for for that same thing. Right. And the hidden manna. Yeah, and the hidden manna would be the truth that very few denominations have. Right. <laughs> the hidden truth that Christian identity teaches. Okay. So again, let me repeat this: to him that overcomes. Not to him that believes, to him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, the truth, the hidden truth that that the churches themselves hide from us, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. So perhaps at the resurrection, each of us gets a new name, you know, hard, hard to say. This obviously is kind of an obscure prophecy, but what it is saying to us is that we will find out what it means in due time. <laughs> okay. Well, well, right. I mean, this could be at the Judgment Day. It could be at the Resurrection. It could be representative of something then. If it's not yeah. revealed to us, we're not going to be able to know what it is. Right. Very good. Very good. Okay, so we've gotten through the first three or four churches here, and we'll pick up with the Church of Thyatira next Saturday night. Uh, my guest tomorrow on uh, Voice of Christian Israel is uh, going to be, again, Greg Howard, and we're going to be doing the Testament of, uh, let me look at my sheet here, the Testament of Gad tomorrow. So please join us for that. Uh, this is Great Frontville, this book of Revelation, with the, histor- with the historicist approach actually makes sense. Contrary to what the Catholic Church says, that nobody can possibly know what the book of Revelation is about, okay? So keep listening, folks. We're going to do our best to interpret the prophetic and symbolic scriptures contained here in the book of Revelation. And, of course, uh, you can share your insights your insights with us uh, by joining us in the chat room. We've had a nice, well-behaved chat room today for a change. <laughs> Praise Yahweh for that. And uh, we'll all see you uh, tomorrow. Thank you, William Fink. And thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh.